History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. In Hungary, out of a population of about 9 million people, about 3.2 million received 200 grams of Irish sugar each. Ireland's helping hand to Europe, Jerome and Deville on Irish relief efforts after World War II and the massive scale of Irish aid to war-torn continental Europe. Also, who in their right mind would take a 50% salary cut and take a dangerous job where you potentially could get killed? But, you know, I was that crazy person who wanted to do that and other women did as well. A tale of discrimination and determination. We visit New York and meet Brenda Berkman, the city's first female firefighter. And to begin this evening, a little-known story of IRA piracy that occurred just before the outbreak of the Civil War. On the night of the 29th of March, 1922, locals in Ballycotton, a small fishing village outside of Cork City, witnessed a spectacular sight. Hundreds of men were unloading weapons from a warship onto cars, trucks and lorries. One woman, a self-described loyalist, dashed off a letter to the British General Strickland in Cork saying, there's a German warship at Ballycotton with a cargo of war materials of all sorts. There's about a thousand men unloading her and hundreds of motors carrying it all over the country. I'm afraid Lloyd George took the troops away too soon. But what was happening was not in fact a German landing, but rather an audacious raid carried out by the anti-treaty IRA on the Royal Navy's arms ship, the Upnor. The raid on the Upnor took place at a time when tensions between the pro and anti-treaty factions were building and dramatically changed the anti-treaty IRA's position. They were now well armed, a fact which greatly worried the provisional government. A new book from Mercier Press, The Bally Cotton Job, an incredible true story of IRA pirates, tells this story for the first time. I'm joined by the author, historian Dr Tom Mahan. Tom, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you, Miles. Great to chat to you. Now, the story of the Upnor raid is actually not very well known. It probably should be a lot better known, but it's, it's a crucial moment in the lead-up to the, the Civil War. Let me ask you, first of all, what was it that piqued your interest in this story? Well, Miles, it's such a fascinating story, and as you said, it's never been told fully before. And I came across just brief mentions about it in books about the Civil War. But actually, I first heard about it when I was a kid growing up in Dublin. And every summer we used to go down to Cork to stay with my grandparents. And my grandfather, Tom Croft, was a very warm, jovial man. He smoked a pipe and always had a twinkle in his eye. And he had an old brass ship's telescope with a single eyepiece. And it was rather like what you'd expect Blackbeard or Captain Kidd to have. And we used to play with that. And then my mother told me the story that he had actually been part of a small group that captured a Royal Navy ship. So this was very exciting to me as a young kid to think that there was actually a pirate in the family. And it wasn't really until many years later that I learned the full story of the capture of the Upnor and I felt I had to tell it. So putting the story together was a very slow process. It it involved an awful lot of archival research Um, But I was very fortunate to find the Royal Navy official report and numerous interviews with the participants scattered across many archives. 
So I presume your your uh, your grandfather Tommy must have had an eye patch if he was a, a, a genuine <laughs> pirate. Um, now, before we get into the story of the raid, explain what was the relationship between Michael Collins and the Cork IRA at this stage. Yes, that, that's very important and crucial to the story. There was actually overall a rather fraught relationship. On the one hand, there was great recognition of Michael Collins's tremendous ability, his leadership and his intelligence. On the other hand, Collins in Dublin was restrained by the moderates among the Sinn Féin leadership. So the fighters in Cork felt they didn't get sufficient support from him. And there was also a lot considerable concern among uh, the Cork leadership about the high living in Dublin. Uh, Michael Collins and associates, they were drinking most nights in Devlin's pub on Parnell Street. They were dining at the Gresham and they were going off to the races. So this didn't seem like a real war where it was uh, much tougher in, in Cork City. But one of the main sources of contention was over the supply of arms and ammunition. Collins, as Minister of Finance in the Doyle government, raised a huge sum of money in Republican bonds, equivalent to at least 20 million euros today. But very little of that money was used to smuggle in weapons for the IRA in the South. The Cork City IRA got a shipment of revolvers from him during the War of Independence, but otherwise only a handful of rifles and a small amount of ammunition. And much of this they actually had to buy. So this was another source of tension between the two. Talk to me a little bit also about this very, very interesting figure and somebody who on many levels couldn't have been more different from Michael Collins. And that was the officer commanding the IRA in Cork City, Sean O'Hegarty. Sean O'Hegarty is a fascinating character. He was a very rigid, um, ruthless person, but also extremely honest and straightforward. He was um, a Fenian, and so he was very 19th century in his outlook, but he was very adaptable and able to use what was then modern technology. So he was a ruthless, very capable leader, and actually, and he led Cork One, which was the uh, largest IRA brigade, and he was the successor to Thomas McCurtain and Terence McSweeney. But um, he, for instance, was worried about the threat posed by informers. So he ended up executing or disappearing more suspected informers than any other IRA leader in the country. Most controversially, he was responsible for the execution of Mrs. Lindsay. Yes. Um, I think that was a terrible episode. Mrs. Lindsay was a loyalist who, I wouldn't use the term informed, because she felt it was the right thing to do. But she went to the army and reported an IRA ambush. And this led to the capture of several IRA volunteers and their execution. And Sean O'Hegarty, without getting permission from headquarters in Dublin and Michael Collins, executed or shot, had uh, Miss Lindsay shot. And he never reported this back to Dublin. So this was another cause of a discord between Michael Collins and Sean O'Hegarty. Now, one of the other major characters in this uh, story, he's introduced right at the beginning of the book. He's uh, he's reading the newspaper, which is of major significance, as we as we will see. Admiral Gaunt, Admiral Ernest Gaunt. Tell me about him. Well, 
Admiral Ernest Frederick Augustus Gaunt was from Australia and um, he was one of the first Royal Navy admirals from Australia. So there was great pride in him. And he had a very distinguished colonial service. And he fought at uh, Jutland in 1916 with great valour. He actually married a lady, Lady Louise, who was one of the Martins from Ballyvaughan. And she grew up in Gregan's Castle. But Gaunt in Ireland was out of his depth and he still felt he was in the colonies and he significantly underestimated the threat he faced from Sean O'Hegarty and the IRA. And during the War of Independence, obviously in Cork, Cork was a hotbed of the of the War of Independence and of the, the military were targeted, the RIC and particularly the RIC in the form of the Black and Tans and the Ogsies uh, were targeted. But Cork had a huge naval presence. Were there many attacks on the Navy during the War of Independence? Well, the IRA were very active, particularly in Cove, but they avoided any direct attacks against the Navy personnel. And the Navy wasn't perceived as a direct threat. Plus, they were very integrated into Cork. Uh, Families, uh, many from nationalist backgrounds, for instance, served in the Royal Navy. So there was no animosity and it was felt they were not a legitimate target. But what we do instead see that in the huge naval dockyards at Hall Bowline, we see IRA sympathisers working in the workshops, making bomb parts, repairing guns, and they were stealing guns left, right and centre from ships. The IRA leader in Cove, Mick Burke, did at one stage blow a hole in a destroyer undergoing a refit in Hull, Hull Bowline. And another time he actually sank five British sloops in the harbour uh, by opening their sea valves. Now, the Civil War hadn't begun at this stage when the Upnor raid takes place. Um, so I suppose my, my question is, was this something that was opportunistic? Because basically the British are pulling out, um, British weapons, British arms are loaded onto this ship. It is heading back uh, to, to Britain. Did the IRA in Cork have much chance to plan or was it just purely opportunistic? Well, an informer in Hall Bowline told Sean O'Hegarty that this ship, the Upnor, is being loaded with munitions on its way back to Plymouth. And so O'Hegarty got his group, who were known as O'Hegarty's crowd, together, and they spent about two weeks planning this. And then they were on standby, ready to go for another two weeks. There were about 10 people who knew the whole operation. And then there were about a thousand people involved who didn't, who only knew their part. So it was a very complex operation. On the morning of Wednesday, March 29th, the IRA in Cork City kidnapped a ship's captain by the name of Jeremiah Collins and they brought him down to Cove. And they sent a second car from Cork City down to the Deepwater Quay where they were to capture a uh, tugboat. And about one o'clock that afternoon, the Upnor left and they still hadn't captured the tugboat, so they were in trouble. And they eventually found a tugboat called the Warrior and they boarded her and they set off at three o'clock. So when they left the harbour, there was no sight of the Upnor and they thought the game was up. They thought they couldn't find it. But Captain Collins, who was actually an admirer of Michael Collins, decided to help them. So he told them to sail southeast and they cut off the Upnor. And so sure enough, at six o'clock, they sighted the Upnor. 
And they came alongside her and then they used a brilliant ruse to get the captain of the Upnor to stop, cut his engines. They then rode over to the Upnor, jumped on board with uh, Thompson machine guns, revolvers, seized the ship, imprisoned the crew. They brought over an IRA crew from the tugboat who manned the Upnor. They then sailed 55 kilometres towards the fishing port of Ballycotton. But in the meantime, in Cork City, hundreds of IRA men seized a hundred lorries and trucks and cars. So it must have been almost every vehicle, mechanised vehicle in Cork. And they brought them, with Sean O'Hegarty in the lead, they travelled 40 kilometres towards Ballycotton. And then, just north of the town, he called a halt. And he waited then. So at about midnight, he saw a flare in the sky. And that was the signal that his scouts on the pier at Ballycotton had sighted the lights of the Upnor and the Warrior coming in. So he then drove through the village and went down to the, the pier to meet the Upnor docking alongside. At what point did Ernest Gaunt realise he had a problem? Well, this was, I had to read this a few times to even believe this. Ernest Gaunt was completely unaware of what was happening. And he actually read his morning newspaper on the Thursday, the following day, the Cork Constitution. And in it, he saw a small article stating that a tugboat, the Warrior, had been seized in Cove the previous day. And it was only then at 10 in the morning that he realised something was amiss and he went into a panic and he sent out uh, destroyers and telegraphed the Admiralty to search for the Upnor. Now, I mean, this was certainly more of the equivalent of the Larne gun running than the Hoth gun running. They got a lot of weapons, didn't they? Yes, they did. They got in all about 80 tonnes of uh, weapons or 70 lorry loads. So there was about a thousand people working on the pier in Ballycotton. There were IRA men and locals who helped out and um, they worked for close to 10 hours. So that gives you an idea of the quantity. But basically, it was 80 tonnes of weapons out of the 120 tonnes on the ship. It comprised at least 200,000 rounds of ammunition, 1,000 rifles, 39 machine guns, over 700 revolvers, around 2,000 grenades and rifle grenades, and a large quantity of explosives, fuses, helmets, and other equipment. So this ammunition was particularly important and it would have constituted at least 80% of the ammunition that the Cork IRA possessed at the outbreak of the Civil War. And was this weaponry intended just for the Cork Anti-Treaty IRA or did they share it with other anti-treaty units? They would have shared it. They did share it with the Kerry IRA. And of course, Kerry was the site of the most terrible fighting in the Mm. Civil War. And they would have shared it among the other brigades within Cork. Some of it may have gone to the four courts. And it's difficult to say beyond that how much sharing there was. But certainly the weaponry was used in the summer of 1922 in the fighting outside Limerick. I'm sure Ernie O'Malley got his hands on some of it at some stage. Um, what was the response then from, from, first of all, from the British government? And then what was the response from the pro-treaty side, from the provisional government, from Collins and Griffith? Well, they were, they were horrified and they were just stunned. 
General McCready said, who was the outgoing British Army commander in Ireland, said that the he had never seen such a gale blowing. That's the words he used, gale blowing in Downing Street. And that the reaction was even greater to that of the outbreak of World War I in 1914. Winston Churchill, who was in charge of Irish affairs, was very worried about the survival of Michael Collins' government. And he immediately made a commitment to arm Collins' national army. So this was a further step along the road to civil war. When General McCready met Collins, he said he found him in a very anxious frame of mind. And in turn, Collins told Churchill that he believed elements within the British military had colluded to arm his opponents within the anti-treaty IRA. And this belief in collusion over the instant persisted among the free state authorities for years afterwards. The other thing that's interesting about it is that there was kind of universal praise for the operation. And um, Winston Churchill said it was a brilliant operation and that the Irish have a genius for conspiracy rather than for government. <laughs> General McCready called it a daring outrage. Even Admiral Gaunt said it was cleverly planned and the New York Times called it a sensational affair. So there was universal praise for the complexity and the success of the operation and an operation in which no one was killed or hurt and, and not even a shot was fired. Let's just finish really by talking about the two men at the centre of all of this because there's a huge irony in this. Sean O'Hegarty uh, masterminds to some extent this operation and then himself takes no part in the civil war. Yes, Sean O'Hegarty sort of had his road to Damascus moment soon after the raid and he realised the full horror of civil war and he also realised the extent of public support for Michael Collins and the treaty. And in a poignant speech to the Doyle a little bit afterwards, several of whose members he had recently threatened to shoot for even supporting the treaty, he said that civil war would break the country utterly and destroy the idea of a republic. And what's interesting about O'Hegarty was that his position came to resemble that of Michael Collins. And while Collins talked about the treaty as a stepping stone to a republic, O'Hegarty said very similarly that when the opportunity comes to set up a republic, it can be set up. And this is the only moment in his whole life that O'Hegarty compromised. And I think it was definitely the right thing to do. And uh, what were the consequences for Admiral Ernest Gaunt? Well, he got what usually happens when you, you commit something of grave incompetence. He was promoted. Of course. He was, he was promoted <laughs> from vice admiral to full admiral. And he was given a further award from the king and he was retired. Churchill and others wanted to court-martial him, but they couldn't have a public court-martial because the incident was so embarrassing. So the Cork IRA are now incredibly well-armed. The Cork anti-treaty forces uh, would have comprised probably about two-thirds of the old Cork IRA. Why, given their early numerical superiority, why, given the extent to which they are now armed, did the anti-treaty IRA in Cork not do better against the pro-treaty forces in the Civil War? 
Well, the pro-treaty forces were very well led and they had a very clear strategy under Michael Collins and that was to defend the treaty and to defend the idea of a free state. The anti-treaty forces were very disparate. They had different aims. Some, like Tom Barry, wanted to set up a military dictatorship and declare war on the British and others were much more moderate, such as Liam Lynch. So there was no unified strategy. There was also a huge distaste at fighting against fellow Irishmen. And furthermore, they, in Cork City, they lost Sean O'Hegarty, who refused to fight with them, and he was a very unifying factor. Also, they were not able to adapt to what became more traditional fighting. They used the weaponry from the up north initially by um, fighting uh, more conventional with heavy machine gun fire, heavy rifle fire. But these were fighters trained in guerrilla warfare, in ambushing, and were not good at this type of fighting. So it was, they were disunited, their heart wasn't in it, and their strategy wasn't even clear. Tom, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, if you want to know more about the fascinating tale of the Upnor arms ship in March 1922, you can read all about it in The Bally Cotton Job, an incredible true story of IRA pirates, one of whom was Tom's own grandfather. The book is published by Mercier Press and it'll be available from bookshops in Ireland and online from the 20th of April. The author is my guest, Dr. Tom Mahan. Tom, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Miles. Just to say a quick word about a new stage production that's running this coming week. That's from the 12th to the 16th of April in the New Theatre in Dublin. The show, which is called Six Days, is a forensic examination of what happened at North King Street during the Easter Rising. It's a story told through original music and spoken word performed by writer-director Frank Schuldeis, whose grandfather and namesake was a sniper at the Jemison Malt House in Smithfield. Six Days is a chambermaid production presented by The New Theatre and you can book tickets on their website, thenewtheatre.com. After the break, we'll be hearing about Irish aid to Europe after World War II. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. After World War II, the Marshall Plan was designed to rebuild the economies and spirit of a continent devastated by the conflict. That post-war recovery initiative from the Americans is well documented, as are the United Nations relief efforts. But until recently, nothing was written about the simultaneous Irish aid to Europe. Ireland donated millions of pounds worth of food, clothes, blankets and medicines to war-torn countries. A substantial amount of aid relative to our size and our population. And this story is told in the recently published book Ireland's Helping Hand to Europe, 1945 to 1950, Combating Hunger from Normandy to Tirana. It's the product of seven years of research and draws on material from dozens of archives throughout Europe. The author is Dr. Jerome Anne Deville from the School of History at University College Cork and he joins me now. Jerome, you're very welcome indeed to the programme. Good afternoon, Miles. Thank you for inviting me. Now, the plan for Irish relief for Europe was announced officially in May 1945, but Eamon de Valera had been thinking about it for a couple of years. For him, I suppose it wasn't just a humanitarian project, but it uh, was also, I suppose nowadays you'd call it an example of soft power. So in this instance, a strategy to protect Ireland's reputation after the war. 
Uh, yes, I think you could put it that way, Miles. In 1943, uh, of course, Ireland was neutral during the war. As we all know, there was pressure for it to join uh, on the side of the Western Allies, uh, which the Irish refused to do, although it was collaborating behind the scenes. But uh, de Valera foresaw that perhaps after the war, an attempt may be made to isolate Ireland because it had been officially neutral in the war. This is what you read in a letter that he wrote to his friend, uh, Sean T. O'Kelly, in, in 1943, where uh, he said, um, I quote, we will send £100,000 to Bengal in India to show that we are not unmindful of the misery in the world around us from which we have been so far providentially saved. An effort will be made to isolate us in the post-war period. This seems to me to be an excellent opportunity to break through the net. So by this he meant that if Ireland was going to be involved in substantial humanitarian aid after the war, well, that would be to Ireland's credit. Of course, that's a political calculation, but the people in the government in Ireland had also a humanitarian ones. So if you want, it was a mixed, these were mixed motivations to come to the aid of continental countries after the war. Now, this is somebody, obviously, who is very, very conscious of optics, therefore. So why is somebody who is so conscious of optics, the person who visits the German legation in the immediate aftermath of the death of the suicide of Hitler and offers the German state sympathy on the death of their head of state? Yeah, that is very uh, that is very contradictory, of course. Now, again, that that, that handshake uh, debacle uh, is is well known. Having said that, uh, the Irish began to think about humanitarian aid to uh, Europe uh, during the war, well before the handshake, as it so happened. Now, I haven't found any evidence that seems to suggest that one of the main motivations for helping uh, France, for helping Poland, for helping other countries was to forget about uh, de Valera's handshake with Hempel. So I think that cannot be said. Uh, Now, of course, you you can say that uh, it helped to improve Ireland's image after that disastrous uh, handshake. That is quite correct. But I haven't found any document that uh, stresses that one of the motives was to make the the people forget the handshake uh, catastrophe. Now, you go into a lot of detail about what Ireland actually gave, what Ireland donated. And uh, reading the book, one of the things that occurred to me was that Ireland must have been responsible for uh, dental decay all over Europe because thousands of tonnes of sugar, for example, uh, were, were, were sent in aid. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to see how important sugar would have been, but uh, obviously it was of some importance. Yes, uh, it was sent all over Europe, really. Now, I can give you um, one or two examples. In Hungary, out of a population of about 9 million people, about 3.2 million uh, received 200 grams of Irish sugar each. So that is a phenomenal amount of sugar sent to Hungary. And at some stage in Athens, there were about 800 tons of Irish sugar Uh, Now, that was mainly distributed to the elderly and uh, young people in in Ireland and, of course, in preparation for food uh, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, Other such items were, uh, for example, bacon, uh, many dairy products, uh, milk powder, for example, uh, all exported in hundreds and hundreds of tons to, uh, you know, countries from, from France all the way to, for example, Albania and Bulgaria. 
Now, by coincidence, 1945 would have been the centenary of the beginning of the Irish famine. And I think in a lot of the material that you have come across in archives, the famine is invoked as a lesson from our own history, as it were. Uh, that's correct. So when the Valera announces uh, the plan officially on the 18th of May 1945 in the Dole, in Dole Aaron, well, many people re- remind that uh, exactly 100 years ago, in 1845, uh, there was a famine in Ireland and several European countries, European peoples, came to the aid uh, of, of Ireland. And that is a theme that you see in, in governmental circles that is used to try to convince the Irish people to donate, but also by the churches, for example, uh, by voluntary organisations and uh, by the media, the press at the time. Uh, remember the 100th anniversary of the famine. So, for example, uh, French Catholics came to the aid of, aid of Ireland, Austrian, Austrians did come, Orthodox Russia even, uh, the Ottoman Empire, the, the Muslim Ottoman Empire, all came to the aid of Ireland. And uh, yes, that is one of the... Uh, the ideas that is put forward to to you know remember the famine of 100 years ago now you're talking about a lot of food a lot of material how did we get it to europe i would have thought by 1945 we didn't have that many cargo ships left no that's correct many had been sunk or sunk by the during the war of course and uh, but one of the caveat was that when the de Valera announced the uh, 3 million relief scheme in, in the Doyle, he said that uh, the Continentals would uh, have to come to collect it. Now, there were a couple of uh, ships that were involved, Irish ships that were involved in uh, the transporting of the, the goods to, uh, to Europe, but uh, mostly there would have been foreign ships. So the way it proceeded was that uh, the ships would generally sail to, uh, to the Bordeaux-Bayonne area in, in southwest France, and from then on, the supplies would be loaded, and uh, if they were meant for the international red cross they would be loaded on to trains and transported to geneva from where they were distrib- being distributed to central and eastern europe okay we'll come back to geneva so we'll park that for the moment but one figure who surprised me as emerging uh, of being of considerable significance in all of this uh, is somebody who would otherwise have been a bet noir for contemporary liberals and uh, certainly a bet noir for for liberals of uh, more recent date. That's John Charles McQuaid, the Archbishop of Dublin. He played an important role in all of this, didn't he? Yes, he he, uh, he plays a very important role. Now, of course, as we all know, McQuaid is a, quite a controversial figure. Uh, he's been seen as a control freak, uh, if I may say so, uh, authoritarian, austere, but uh, behind that facade there is a very deeply compassionate man. Now, for example, he is involved, when the idea uh, is suggested that Ireland should uh, welcome a certain number of continental children uh, who had suffered from traumas during the war, McQuaid is immediately involved and he is very instrumental in the welcoming of uh, French uh, children to Ireland, uh, about 100 French children in, in September 1945. And then, of course, when this plan is announced as well, the, the, the sending of relief supplies to the continent, he becomes involved massively in the collection of supplies in his uh, diocese uh, for France, for Hungary, for, uh, for Italy. His work is very remarkable in, in, in that respect, absolutely. And is he able to use church networks? Yeah, the advantage of the, the Catholic Church is that it's, of course, a transnational, you know, it's present everywhere. And, for example... 
he receives a few letters from different archbishops in uh, bishops in Europe, for example. Uh, Archbishop de Jong from Utrecht in the Netherlands, who writes in a letter in Latin to him, asking for his aid, for Ireland's aid. And McQuaid helps him out, he does. And he is very much in touch with Joseph Walsh and Frederick H. Boland, who are the top civil servants in the Department of External Affairs, as it was known then, and with whom he talks regularly about relief. So he's massively present. Now, in 1947, there was uh, an exceptionally cold winter. There was a big freeze. Temperatures dropped dramatically in Ireland to something like minus 14 for a number of weeks. How did that impact this relief effort? Yeah, so that was the the big freeze. This was a very freak uh, freak accident. As you know, uh, Irish weather is, is rather mild. But for weeks at the beginning of 1947, Ireland was overcome by temperatures that would uh, fall as low as minus 14, covered in in, in layers of snow and ice. And at that stage, you get, shall we say, a a campaign that is developing with certain uh, newspapers that you could describe as a a charity begins at home type of campaign. And that is, um, should we continue to export supplies to the continent bearing in mind what is happening here in Ireland, where people are dying from from the cold and hunger, eh, quite correctly. Now, de Valera and several bishops from the Catholic hierarchy oppose this campaign, and they said that, yes, the position at home is extremely preoccupying, but the position for continentals is still very much worse. But what you do have is uh, debates that are reported by the newspapers. So, for example, if you go to Galway, there is uh, a debate between the, the technical school, Galway Technical School, and the Dominican Convent Taylor's Hill School for or against uh, relief. And uh, the Galway Technical School wins that debate, according to the people present, and they were against relief. But by the summer of 1947, there is a golden harvest in Ireland, and the uh, the problem blows over, really. So by the beginning of ni- September 1947, it's, the debate is, is, is finished. OK, we parked Geneva. Let's get back to it. Tell us how the Vatican wasn't happy with how Irish supplies were being distributed. Uh, yes, so of course this whole humanitarian operation takes place in the background of the Cold War, the nascent Cold War East and West conflict that uh, is getting more and more precise. And at the beginning, in 1945-46, it is not too much of a problem. But then when the first persecutions of, uh, for example, um, Cardinal Mizenti in Hungary or Archbishop Stepinat in, in, in Yugoslavia become known in Ireland, now public opinion, Irish public opinion is, is outraged. There are also kinds of allegations that the communists, the local communists may hijack, manipulate Irish supplies to their advantage, which in, in fact is not true, I, I can say that. But here comes in the Vatican that prefers really that Ireland uh, collaborates directly with the Vatican in humanitarian aid or uh, through, for example, the National Catholic Welfare Conference, which is led by the American Catholic hierarchy rather than the uh, International Red Cross Society. Now, the International Red Cross Society is based in Geneva and was in charge of of distributing Irish supplies behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, now, eventually, uh, de Valera's government gives in to that and collaboration with uh, the International Red Cross is, is terminated and continued with the National Catholic Welfare Conference, which is far tougher on emerging communist regimes. So was this Irish aid in the main going to European Catholic countries, European Catholics? 
Uh, no, that I, I don't think that can be said. For example, uh, an awful lot of supplies are being sent to Bulgaria, Greece, Romania, which would be orthodox. In Albania, now that is a very interesting uh, example, I think. Albania is a predominantly Muslim. It gets Irish supplies. And, for example, in, in France, in the Parisian region, Irish supplies are distributed to the North African population who lives there. So there is no discrimination of, of any kind, not that I could find, no. Uh, Jerome, did the operation work from an Irish point of view? Did it help prevent what de Valera feared, the isolation of Ireland after the Second World War? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question and, and with a complex answer, really. Uh, so on, on the one hand... Ireland seems to open up to Europe and is admitted. For example, it uh, participates in the setting up of the Council of Europe in The Hague in, in, in 1948. There are as well um, some negotiations that Ireland might become part of NATO, although that does not uh, happen, as we all know, uh, eventually. Uh, that was back in 1949. Ireland wants to become a member of the United Nations, but is blocked by the Soviet Union from 1945 until 1955. The Soviets arguing that Ireland had been in favour of Germany during the war, which is not correct. And then on the other hand, you have the beginnings of European integration. Ireland does not participate in the Treaty of Paris, the setting up of the Coal and Steel uh, Pact, and a few years later, the setting up of the EEC, the Treaty of Rome in 1957. So it's, it's a bit of both, really. Uh, now, Ireland develops very good relations, for example, with the Netherlands for a brief period. It sent many supplies to the Netherlands, and you, you get the development of very strong ties. At some stage, the Netherlands become Ireland's fourth or fifth largest uh, import-export partner. There are some cultural exchanges. Uh, all that is as a result of this Irish aid to the Netherlands. So... It's a bit of both, really, Miles. I realise there is no clear-cut answer to that. But to say that it was deliberately isolated is not correct, apart from the Soviet Union that refused, uh, as I just said, UN membership to Ireland until 1955. Well, the book is called Ireland's Helping Hand to Europe, 1945 to 1950, Combating Hunger from Normandy to Tirana. It's published by Central European University Press. The author is my guest, Jerome Andeville. And Jerome, many thanks indeed for joining us. Many thanks, Mark. Many thanks. After the break, Colm Flynn visits the Big Apple to meet Brenda Berkman, New York City's first female firefighter. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Now we bring you a story from New York where women make up just a little over 1% of the city's firefighters. It's a very small figure, but not that long ago, women were not even allowed to apply for the job. In the early 1980s, one woman was determined to change all that and join their ranks. Colin Flynn has the story. It's 9am in New York City and I'm walking down a street in the Lower East Side of Manhattan with a woman called Brenda Berkman. Straight ahead up here there is a kindergarten class uh, on the Lower East Side that's named after me. All the classrooms are named after women that uh, they think would be good role models for the little girls. We come to a stop just outside a small firehouse that Brenda knows only too well. So I came here right out of probationary training school. Such terrible memories. I mean, the day that they fired me here, when I walked out the door, the men clapped. And it was just so 
nasty and not at all the image that people have of, you know, America's heroes. This is where Brenda was stationed back in 1983, after becoming New York City's first female firefighter. But to find out how she got to that point, we have to go back to the start. So I grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is in the heartland of the country. I really love school, but I was always struck by the fact that uh, there were almost no examples of stories about women in history. I had read all these books, a whole series of little history books that I read in the third grade reading about George Washington and uh, Thomas Jefferson and men, a lot of men. And I thought, well, there must have been women who did um, important things in history. And it was only when I got to college that I started to try and investigate for myself, you know, what some of those stories might be. And so I went on to study history for two years at the graduate level after college. Then I went to law school. I thought lawyers could do work to achieve social justice. That's what I wanted to do. I went to three years of law school, and then I quit to become a firefighter. From a young age, Brenda had always had it in the back of her mind that she would someday be a firefighter. But there was one problem. They had not allowed women to even take the firefighter test until they were forced to do so by federal law that changed and applied to them for the first time in 1977. Uh, probably not surprisingly, the fire department decided to change the physical portion of the entry exam when women were first allowed to apply. And what did they do? Did they make it harder so that it would be impossible yeah, for you to pass? they did make it harder. And the, the person who was the deputy in charge of the exam said that, in his opinion, it was the hardest exam that had ever been given for any job in New York City. The standards were really not based on science. They were based totally on prejudice. So you took the physical test, though? Yeah, and failed it, as did every one of the 90 or so women who had taken the physical exam. Brenda was not one to give up easily, and rather than accept the rejection, she took a case against the FDNY for discrimination and the story immediately became big news. New York City Fire Chief John Hart denies that the test was made more difficult in order to keep anyone from passing. I didn't want standards to be lowered. I want standards to be job-related. So, so was, was public opinion against you then as so well? Public opinion was against me. The union was against me. I got death threats to my home. Who in their right mind would take a 50% salary cut and take a dangerous job where you potentially could get killed. But, you know, I was that crazy person who wanted to do that, and other women did as well. And, I, you know, I discovered about myself, there was also a, a part of me that was just tired of having people say to me, you can't do that because you're a girl. People should be given a chance to show whether, in fact, they can be trained to do the job and not be automatically presumed to not be able to do the job because of their gender. Brenda was more determined than ever, and despite mounting pressure to back down from all sides, 
She pressed ahead, and here she is speaking on national TV at the time, defending her position. I don't know that there will ever be enormous numbers of women who want to be New York City firefighters, but the point is women have to be offered the opportunity to be for the jobs. It's a great job, it really is. Brenda won the landmark court case, and in 1983 became New York City's first female firefighter and was stationed at this firehouse just around the corner from us on Pitt Street, a place that doesn't evoke pleasant memories for Brenda. Keep in mind, I'm right out of training school. I don't know anything, pretty much, you know. I barely know which end of the hose the water comes out of. <laughs> it's expected that the new firefighters are going to learn from the more senior people once they get assigned out in the field, out to the firehouse. Rather than teach me things, these guys were ostracizing me, so I wasn't allowed to eat with them. They didn't speak to me. They messed with my protective equipment. They uh, walked around naked in front of me. They put obscene stuff up all over my locker, you know, the nastiest kind of pornography. And, and this was all Brenda to try and get you out? Yeah, no, to make me quit. But for the most part, the women got their most support from the group of African-American male firefighters that uh, had gone through many similar kinds of experiences. And things didn't really get any better. Only a year had passed when Brenda was called into the office one day and told that she was not capable of doing the job and she was fired. And what was that like after everything you'd fought for and achieved by becoming the city's first female firefighter after just a year having to clean out your locker and walk out of the firehouse here? Well, it was truly one of the worst days of my life to learn that I'd been fired and then to have the men uh, who were working that day clap when I left with my personal effects. But I believe that the reasons that the city had given for firing me would be shown in court to be so ludicrous, so unsubstantiated and insupportable that I never doubted in my mind that I was going to get my job back. Brenda fought hard once again, not just for her own rights, but for the rights of any woman hoping to join the fire department. And she got her job back, and despite huge opposition, continued to forge ahead. If you don't do it, who's going to do it? I, I feel so blessed. I've had so many opportunities in my life. And my parents taught me that you're not on earth just to take up space. You should try and leave the world better than when you came into it. Colin Flynn was reporting there. He was talking to Brenda Berkman, the first woman ever to be hired by the New York City Fire Department. Brenda retired in 2006 at the rank of captain, and these days she balances her time between being a full-time artist and sharing her story of courage and perseverance with the next generation. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath and Kieran Dunn on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.